Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Hello and welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. We have with us Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, and I'm John Farman. Um, Hazel's not with us, so I am your temporary host for today's proceedings, and it's had a very exciting show today. We have some recommendations where we will be talking about Glass, the sequel to both Unbreakable and Split. Peter will be talking through his sex education. <laughs> And I will be taking a train to Busan. With some special scary passengers. They're zombies. They're zombies. Well, yeah. That's that spoiled. Still better than my usual commute. <laughs> <laughs> we'll also be hearing from me and Maya from Beyond the Void. And speaking of hideous voids, we'll be delving into John's sack of fun to see what horrors lurk within. So let's start the show. As you'll be aware from my tones, I am not Hazel Burton. We miss her, but she's currently very, very ill. She's very sick. That's a bit dark. That, yeah, that doesn't yeah, sound... What you mean is she has a cold. She has a cold, yes. Yeah, yeah. You made it sound terminal. I don't think it's that serious a cold. Um, I phoned into work once and said, I can't come in, I'm sick. They said, uh, well, how sick are you? I said, well, I've been in bed with my sister. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Hazel is not with us because she has a cold and or has been kidnapped. <laughs> that was no. Just, I can just see the don't go there expression <laughs> down over there. Um, shall we do some recommendations? Mm. John, would you want to go first? Uh, yes, I am going to recommend the film Glass, which I saw this week, which has got mixed reviews, but I actually really liked it. Mm. So for those who don't know, this is, and I'm not sure it's been done is before. Is this going to be a spoilery or non-spoilery, just for anyone who I'm hasn't gonna seen it I'm going to be non-spoilery. Good. Because um, I know, I think, am I the only person that's seen it? Uh, yes, but I... I will see it. Yeah, I haven't seen Unbreakable yet, so... Okay, I'm afraid I may... It's fine, I know what happens in yeah. Glass anyway. I've, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've read some spoilery yeah. reviews. So, Glass is something that I'm not sure I've seen before, though inevitably it will have been done. It is a joint sequel to two unrelated movies. Though you do know they're not as unrelated as you might have thought, because I didn't realise this, but the character from Split was originally going to be in Unbreakable, in Unbreakable and yeah. later on they took the character out. Mm-hmm. So it, to some extent, there was always a link between the stories. And there's also at the end of Split, so there's a credits scene where we see Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. which is kind of a teaser for the fact they're connected. But uh, we ha- it's a sequel to Unbreakable, which came out about 17 years ago. The Bruce Willis superhero origin movie. And also a sequel to Split, the James McAvoy multiple identity serial killer movie, which I wasn't that keen on. Mm -hmm. I really liked Unbreakable. I wasn't that keen on Split. I like both. I like Mm -hmm. Split. Glass begins with David Dunn trying to track down James McAvoy's character from Split. He he finds him in a warehouse. And as they're battling, so the police turn up, Bruce Willis and James McAvoy end up in a mental asylum where also lurking there is Samuel L. Jackson as Elijah Wood or Mr. Glass, also Elijah from Wood. Unbreakable. I can't be right. Elijah... From Flipper. Not Elijah Wood, no. <laughs> what's, oh, God, what's his character called? Price? Elijah Price, yes. Mm. Also there is Elijah Price, not Elijah Wood. No, he was halfway to Mordor when this was happening. Who is also in this asylum. All three of them have been 
questioned by Sarah Paulson as a prison psychiatrist. Her name is Sarah Paulson. Her name is Sarah Paulson. In death, her name is Sarah Paulson. What? Continue. Fight Club. <laughs> Fight Club. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah, so that's the setup, and the film is not what I was expecting at all. It's very much more intimate and low-key. Apparently the budget was $20 million. Ooh, a big chunk of which I would imagine went on Bruce Willis and mm. Mr. McAvoy. Very low-key, all set mainly within this prison, and quite talky, but also very explorative of what comic book characters are and yeah. what superheroes are in a way that Unbreakable also was. It's very difficult to talk much more about it without getting into spoilers, but it goes off in directions that I didn't expect. It's messy in a way that M. Night Shyamalan stuff tends to be. There's ideas in there that aren't necessarily all followed through, and the low budget does jump out in certain spaces. Mm-hmm. It wrong-foots you several times in terms of where it's heading towards. It's got the twist at the end that you would mm-hmm. expect from M. Night Shyamalan, but even before then, it kind of wrong-foots you in terms of you have expectation of what is going to happen with the characters. I was distracted by the kid from Unbreakable, who is played by the same actor, but appears to have grown into Randall from Clerks in the interim for some reason. Is he even recognisable 17 years later or however there long is, it is? Yeah, there's a lot of um, footage from Unbreakable in there, so oh, right. you, you get flashbacks to him as a kid. And is that genuine footage rather than reshot footage? That's genuine footage, yeah. There's a couple of shots of de-aged Bruce Willis that are not entirely convincing. And there's one moment where it's painfully obvious they couldn't get a certain actor or actress back from the originals. So they do a Back to the Future style, here's mm. the back of his head. They oh, didn't uh, suspend her upside down at the no. door as well. <laughs> but it's it's good, it's interesting. It's As a mediation on superheroes and comic books, it works very, very well. The ending is, again, not what you would expect. Bits of it don't work, bits of it do work so hard to talk about without spoiling Mm. but there is enough in there that particularly if you liked Unbreakable go and see it people talk about how it's more of a split sequel than an Unbreakable sequel and certainly James McAvoy gets a lot more to do than Bruce Willis does I would say for the first two thirds you are dealing with a split sequel but then the themes that it talks about the mood and the ending are very much tonally similar to Unbreakable So it's a little bit schizophrenic in that way, in that you've got two films that are very tonally different, Mm. and that is jarring at times. So a bit messy, but interesting, and good ideas in there. Good ideas in there, definitely. I would definitely go and see it. Okay. Whether you need to go and see it in a cinema, it's because of the scale of the because of the scale of it. It's very small scale. It's not particularly cinematic. So you could wait for TV or video on demand or dubious internet sites, whichever your predilection is. It features the worst fucking cameo of all time. M. Knight's cameo. It's not a spoiler to say that M. Knight turns up in a role. Now, he had a role in Split as well, so is he the same character in this? Because he was in both movies. He, I thought it was different people in each movie. He is certainly the character he cameoed as in Unbreakable, but I think he certainly tries to suggest that it's the same right. character in all of them. I don't know if it's true or not, but I kind of had the feeling during filming Split, he didn't have this idea and it was only at the end that he'd got Bruce Willis interested and thought, oh yeah, we can do that. And then thought, mm. let's stick this tease on the end. Even if we don't do it, it's a great idea to, to just suggest it was possible and then got to do it. But that that's just my yeah, supposition. I, I, I think when he got Bruce Willis in to do the cameo at that point, he was definitely thinking of 
Glass as a trilogy closer. But Split could stand on its own perfectly well. I did hear he did the teaser bit as, as few people as possible knowing about yeah. it and keeping it as quiet as possible. To, and uh, they had to have discussions with Disney and so on because Bloomvehicle was a Disney film. Mm-hmm. Whereas Universal have split, and this is a Blumhouse film, so it's all it's very tangled right. So that, that might represent neutral territory to the two biggies. Mm-hmm. So uh, how many identities out of 10 would you give it? I give it seven James McAvoy identities out of 23. <laughs> seven out of 23? Yes, but also a seven out of 10. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I think a lot of the bad reviews of it are people not getting what they expected rather than mm. it being a bad film. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I don't really know what to expect. I expect it to be interesting, so it sounds like that's mm-hmm. what I'll get. Yeah. Do I need to have seen Unbreakable? Oddly enough, yes. I would say you can get away without seeing Split more than you can get away without seeing Unbreakable. In the, the central idea of Split, which is just he's a bunch of different people. Yeah. You don't need to know much more than that. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, yeah. I mean, I've seen Split, but I fell asleep. Which, you know, that didn't stop you deciding it wasn't a good film. <laughs> no, no, I've seen, yeah, I've seen Split in a distracted watching it on the sofa kind of way. There's a character in oh, it. And also the bits you'll like are in the second half of Split. In what way? One of the identities is Nick Cage. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, it's a different thing in the first half to what it is in the last 20%. I didn't like The Beast. I thought The Beast was a silly idea, too many. Unbreakable, I think you need to see. You don't get much guidance as to the relationship between David Dunn and his son, which is very much the crux of Unbreakable. And you don't get an awful lot of backstory or setup as to who Elijah Wood from Flipper is. <laughs> not Elijah Wood. Who is obviously. not Elijah Wood. That's his other personality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think you need to see Unbreakable, yeah. One of the weird things about Unbreakable, which you won't get if you watch it now, is the context of it. That was a time when there weren't many superhero movies around. Yeah. And superheroes were considered to be not something to be taken seriously in any sort of way. Which is why I think Unbreakable spends a lot of its time pretending it's not a superhero movie. Mm -hmm. It's only later on that it gets to its more fantastical bits. If you look at the earlier Marvel movies as well, they kind of played it safer and focused on the less superhero bits Mm. to start with. Yeah. I think that Unbreakable at the time was breaking new ground. There's been a superhero movie that treated the superhero movie as a serious drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it before or after the first X-Men? Around the same time, okay. I think. Yeah. yeah. But certainly we were in a world of superhero movies still being quite campy. I mean, Batman and Robin was a fresh yeah. memory. And mm-hmm. what else would there have been? Blade? Blade was sort of mid-90s, Unbreakable was 2001, mm-hmm. I think. But at the time, the idea of the dark, brooding superhero was unusual and a novelty. So Hazel, I think, saw it fairly recently, mm-hmm. and they were underwhelmed. But I think you would be underwhelmed because Batman Begins came along and did it better, and a lot of other films came along and did the similar idea. Mm-hmm. It's a film that has not aged well in the way that Total Recall has. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> right yeah my recommendation is a comedy series on netflix called sex education has anyone watched any of that i know it's got gillian anderson in it, it does yes um, most notable about... obviously from the x-files yeah it's about all i know she plays the sex therapist mum of otis who's an awkward teenager played by asa butterfield though he doesn't know much about sex himself he hears about it all the time there's 
sort of manuals, equipment and videos and stuff lying around the house. And he overhears his mum counselling clients and all that sort of thing. So he's quite exposed to it, though his practical knowledge is quite limited. Kind of like you, Dad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Her mum has no sort of boundaries in what she'll talk to him with, which is sometimes very embarrassing for him. I don't know about you two. I, I could talk to my mum about such things if, if I needed to. Yeah, I talk to, I talk to your mum about it all the time because she's quite open, yeah. Me, me too, surprisingly. Yeah, but, yeah. but never in the sort of detail that he's subjected to, which is quite horrifying sometimes. I remember as a, as a small child, I was a big Monty Python fan and my parents were a fan of the series and they recorded Monty Python's Meaning of Life for mm. me. I expect it to be like the TV series. Yeah. And there's the bits in Every the film. Every sperm is sacred. No, the this the sex education. Oh yeah. Teacher. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So I was watching this yeah. at a very very young age, and my parents were kind of looking at it with horror. And my mum was like, "Well, does he know about all this sort of stuff?" And my dad just said, "Well, he does now." <laughs> so that, that was. <laughs> I the don't extent. think that's the way you want to learn it. No, it's a way to learn it. <laughs> I can only get an erection when John Cleese is lecturing me sternly. <laughs> Luckily, he's not busy these days. <laughs> it's a sort of oddly typical sort of high school thing in some ways, though he has an extremely camp black best friend, Eric, and the pair are pretty much shunned by everyone at school till he teams up with Maeve, the punky girl outcast. And, and they Manny end up... Pixie dream girl. Pretty much, yeah. And they end up providing sexual advice to the students at the school. How old are these kids? Overgrown teenagers and the way they are in movies. Okay, so American high school teenagers. Yeah, pretty much. Each episode opens with an occasionally shocking sex scene and then deals with the fallout from it later when he helps someone with the problem that was kind of covered in that scene. I was a little surprised when they started featuring someone drawing tentacle porn at the start of one of the episodes. It may be about sex, but it's not really sexy as such. It's kind of almost matter-of-fact in how it shows some of it. It's not necessarily trying to titillate. Though there is a degree of shock value in what they start each episode with. Some of the locations look really beautiful. Like I say, it feels like an American version of England somehow. So it's set, it's set in England? It's actually filmed in Wales. It's, yeah. it's set in England, everyone's English accents and things. But there's just little clues that make it not quite feel like England, like there's lockers in the hallways, the sort of tribal nature of the kids, the letterman jackets and things. There's, there's just little hints that it's somehow an American high school instead of an English one. Mm. So is it kind of playing off all of its the different tropes. inspirations like high school dramas and yeah. John Hughes films yeah. and Saved by the Bell and in, all that kind fact, of stuff. In fact, apparently the director's a big fan of John Hughes films. Mm. Um, but I think it was probably done to give it a wide, worldwide appeal so people mm-hmm. would understand what it is. It didn't feel like it was parochial and set in a limited place. How's uh, Gillian Anderson in it? She's good. Is she in it a lot then? Uh, not a huge yeah. amount. 10%. Yeah. She's just one of the ingredients in his life. Mm-hmm. It's much more focused on him. Yes. She has two boys now who are 10 and 12. And she was saying she hasn't really had to deal with explaining this stuff to them yet. It'll be weird. How do you know this, Pete? Have you been stalking Gillian Anderson? Yes, of course. Don't you? Occasionally. <laughs> She's <laughs> playing Margaret Thatcher, isn't she? She is. So that's in, a bit of a bit. Brown. That, yeah. It could be good. worse. It could be Margaret Thatcher doing the sex talk. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't bear thinking yeah, about She's making a return to the West End soon as well in a stage version of All About Eve. Do you get tickets? I cannot confirm in case Amy's listening. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. I massively failed to get tickets for that. I was foaming at my computer. And then you couldn't get tickets. <laughs> I couldn't get yeah. tickets, yes. Um, I did get tickets to see uh, Loki in Betrayal. Oh, yeah. mm. it's, it's a superhero mashup, though, because Daredevil's Charlie Cox is the supporting actor in it. Interesting. Is mm. he going to take issue with Hiddleston for taking the Marvel streaming TV show 
possibly away from him. I, th- I imagine there'll be some seething resentment on stage. That's but, always yeah. makes for an entertaining evening. Mm-hmm. Tom yeah. Hiddleston and Charlie Cox in a pinto play. I think maybe my birthday treat. I hope it is the kind of pinto where you can understand what the hell's going on. We didn't go together, but we were in the same theatre for the McKellen Stewart. Stewart. No uh, Man's Land. Yes. Yeah, not a clue what that was about. It was lovely to see them on stage there. Great, great <laughs> acting, but yeah. not a fucking Not clue. a fan of the play. Sorry, Harold. Uh, one bizarre thing, apparently Ada Butterfield's mum is actually a psychologist, so he had some sort of experience <laughs> with all this sort of stuff. What will I know Ada Butterfield from? I know the name. Well, but... he's in Ender's Game. Hugo? Scorsese oh, was film? he the kid in Hugo? That's, yeah. that's a film. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's a, I he was a good film. child actor, yeah. and he's not a weird child actor now. No. If that makes sense. So, I'm about three or four episodes in. I'm enjoying it quite a lot. It's a non-demanding watch. Uh, the leads are all good. The characters are growing on me. Apart from the headmaster has a hideous son who's like the school bully. His sexual problem's not being able to come, so he has to fake it with his girlfriend. How? How? Well, you just make lots of noise and hope she doesn't notice, I suppose. Does he have like a turkey baster or something? <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's why she knows he's faking it, because he just made the noise. Oh, so oh, she knows he's not, he's not fooled her. Yeah, he didn't fool her, no. For some reason, he ends up exposing himself to whole school, following Otis's advice. Not to do that, but just after having a session with him. <laughs> you had a session with him? Uh, I knew you'd go there. But that, that just kind of makes him more Otis's nemesis. He has a, another reason to bear a grudge against him. It's not really a sitcom. The comedy's much more gentle than that. Um, but I, I think it's worth worth watching see if, see whether you like it or not it's worth watching an episode or two because the first episode's mainly just setting up the situation and then it kind of becomes itself a yeah. bit more in the second i'm a big fan of episodic tv at the moment i miss things like star trek the next generation and buffy uh-huh. where you would have a, an overriding arc to some point but you could sit and put an episode on and enjoy a little nice self-contained story and not have to remember yeah. the last five hours. Mm, rather than a one where if you haven't watched the previous three seasons, you'd be completely yeah. lost. Mm-hmm. It's why I've never got into The Sopranos. Mm. It's not as so much a problem now if I watched it on streaming, but when it used to be on TV, you miss one episode mm. and you might as well stop watching mm-hmm. because you're never going to catch up. Mm. I'm always surprising, less so now. And I think it's, it's not a thing in terms of Netflix and so it's not a problem, as you say. But things like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, which I think predated streaming being such a big thing, that the audience figures just don't gradually drop throughout the lifetime of the series. I mean, certainly say streaming allows the audience to grow for for something like Breaking Bad, as everyone else tells everyone else to watch it, Mm -hmm. and then they jump on the bandwagon. But you couldn't do that in old-style TV. I know what you mean. A lot of my TV watching comes on a commute now, so The Next Generation is one of my go-to shows because you can put one episode on. Mm Mm-hmm. You don't have to remember what happened in the previous 50. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it has an ending. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just end halfway through something because you're going to watch the next episode. Whereas a lot of the more long form shows now don't really have that basic three act structure mm-hmm. because the season has the three act structure. So there are individual episodes where nothing really happens and they're not skippable because they're part of the whole season, but they definitely weren't necessary. Yeah, yeah. I think the Marvel ones, there were a thing about there had to be 13 episodes or something, and yeah. they really suffered for that. Mm. Daredevil solving a new crime each episode would have been a very different show, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been bad. There's, there's room for both. I mean, I quite like Elementary, the American Sherlock. Uh-huh. That's fairly episodic, but again, you've got some underrunning storylines. I think the Netflix stuff particularly suffers from 
trying to be both a 13 hour long story chopped up and also then trying to have some sort of narrative impetus throughout the hour long show. Yeah, and they're not always an hour long either. I mean, watching Daredevil season three at the moment, some episodes are 40 minutes, some are Mm. just north of an hour. That should Um, be a good thing because that way the story can drive how long an episode should be. Whereas on broadcast TV, it's got to be 43 minutes for a US Mm -hmm. show. It's strange though because some of the longer ones feel like, well, there was a fair bit of that that didn't need to be in there. Yeah. And then the shorter ones feel like, oh, that wasn't much of an episode because you were used to ones being 50, 55 minutes and then suddenly there's one mm. that's 10 minutes shorter. You think, oh, this is a filler episode. I would argue that's the content's problem, not mm. the different yeah. lengths. I w- I, comedies really suffer on Netflix, though. But Flabby comedies. The 22 minutes for a comedy is brilliant because they've got to cut it down to just the gags and mm. they've got to be really, really tight. So if you look at Arrested Development... Mm. The network episodes of Arrested Development are 22 minutes of just gag, 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 gag. They go on Netflix, okay, you can have 35, 40 minutes, and they're flabby as fuck. Though, yeah. Right? But then, again, that's, that's, that's that. not the problem of having that ability. That's the problem of whoever was making the decision. Yeah. There's probably the, loads of really nice stuff would have been cut out the 22 minute. But you, you just end up with the best of it. I, th- I think having that, that mm. limit put on you, that, that structure forces it. Okay, by that argument, yes. you'd only get best of albums by any artist you really loved. Yeah. <laughs> Or you make an album that you've written 23 songs for, but you pick the best 12. Yeah. And you can always release the other 11 later on when you run out of ideas. I would argue that albums have suffered because of CDs. Having to make them 11 tracks instead of eight and that sort of thing. So you've got 74 minutes and you end up with fucking Be Here Now, which is, you know, just the sound of cocaine being hoovered up. Every song (laughs) is 11 minutes long and over-tracked to oblivion. The Guns N' Roses Chinese Democracy album. When you had a 35, 40-minute album and you had to put your best tracks on, mm. now albums are padded out with things that should be B-sides or demos. Mm-hmm. So you're yeah. wrong, Peter. Well, no, no <laughs> I, I, I see Peter's point, and it is the content rather than the lengths, but because, like John says, they're making one long 13-hour episode, mm. there aren't 13 clear-cut plot points to end each episode yeah. in. So you get It'd be that better variability. If you could not be hidebound by that thirteen episode structure as yeah. well. Again, mm. be driven by the story and what the demands of the story are. That's a yeah. better way of doing it. I think the BBC have actually started to get it right with their dramas at the moment. The adaptation of Les Misérables, which is on at the moment, mm-hmm. is five, maybe six. I'm not sure. Clear hour-long episodes that tell one big story, but each episode is watchable by itself, mm-hmm. and they seem to have found a balance. They did it with Bodyguard and Killing Eve as well. Each episode of those shows worked, but the series as a whole works as a binge watch as well. Yeah. It's tricky to achieve, but it can be done. Comedy-wise, Sally Forever did that very well as well. Each one had a story, a beginning, a middle, and an end, but worked really well overall as a quite grim, depressing comedy about somebody having a mental breakdown or insanity. <laughs> yeah, talking comedy about girl. explicit sex scenes. I mean, they've talked about the sex scenes on Sally Forever on the Pilot TV podcast quite a lot, mm. and they sound graphic. Have you not seen this show? I have not seen this show. <laughs> Don't watch it on the train. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Do you find on your commute, do you censor what you watch knowing that you're on a train and somebody could be sat next to you? Yes, I will tend to be careful yeah not so much for violent stuff but i wouldn't watch sex education on the train based on what you've told me about how each episode opens because i just know that somebody would come and check my ticket as somebody's (laughs) drawing tentacles. is that what it's called nowadays um yeah i've got a certain set of shows that i would watch at home and shows that i would watch Mm. on the train i've had some awkward moments yeah yeah 
Mindhunter mm-hmm. would be a nice safe procedural for 99% of it and then still is a graphic murder happen just as that child's walking past your seat. Do you ever kind of turn your laptop to the window so that other people can't see it? Yeah, it's usually angled in such a way that I, I can see it, but other people cannot. Mm. It is curious how many people from the opposite side of the row of seats will just peer over and watch what you're watching. Mm. Mm-hmm. So others have been enjoying The Next Generation with me. Whether they like it or not. Whether they like it or not. Uh, I also have a recommendation. I would like to recommend the film Train to Busan, which I saw on Amazon Prime a little while ago. Mm -hmm. I'd heard really good things about this Korean zombie film set on a train. Put it on and it's maybe the best zombie film I've ever seen. Have you seen many zombie films? I've seen quite a few zombie films, and this one was really compelling. It had characters you cared about, it had great action, there's constant tension, and the setting of it on the train just added something completely different to it, a whole new dimension Mm. to avoid the standard boring zombie movie tropes. It's Korean, is it? It's Korean, yeah. Subtitled? Subtitled, and just great film. I was thoroughly hooked into it. It is unforgiving. It's a cruel film. There are people you care about and not all of those people are going to make it. It's not Hollywoodized at all where you know that none of the central people are actually going to be harmed at all. It's not afraid to just unceremoniously kill off a character that you've invested in because that is how dangerous these very scary zombies are. See, I don't have you down normally as much of a horror film fan. I'm not normally, but when it's really good, I really like it. This is why I saw my ears picked up. When you recommend a horror movie, oddly enough, I take that very seriously because I know you're not a fan of the genre. Mm. So I assume if you recommend it, that it's going to be something special. I put it on, I think, at midnight with a view to just watching the first 10 minutes. I sat up till half two in the morning watching it, absolutely glued to the screen, and I absolutely loved it. So they've been infected. There's some kind of virus. You don't get to find out exactly how. You find out what the characters find out. Korean trains, very high tech, they have TV screens, Mm. Um, so they hear the news, they've all got smartphones, they're checking for updates, but they don't know anything beyond that. You get bitten, you get infected, very soon afterwards you are a zombie. And they're fast zombies as well. They get a lot of flack, fast zombies, but in the situation of being on a train, when they're having to race through carriages trying to outrun these zombies, it works really, really well. Hmm. The last film I watched set on a train was Snowpiercer. Yeah, it's got echoes of Snowpiercer. I've not seen it. But uh, as a horror fan, John, was there anything that you will have picked up on that I might not have, other than just really enjoying it? Um, what I liked was they did things with zombies that I'd not seen before. They put them in situations I'd not seen before. So there's some really good staging. Small spoilers, but there's a bit on an escalator, which was really, really well mm. done. So they're kind of just ploughing the wrong way up an escalator. Mm-hmm. And it was it just staged really, really well. I loved the bit in the train station in the middle. Again, not Hollywood eyes, so it killed the characters you wouldn't necessarily expect to mm-hmm. be killed in that sort of film. The sort of the generic tropes of a zombie film, but I would say it was more of an action film than a horror film. Mm-hmm. I wasn't scared at any point. I was tense mm-hmm. and excited, but I wasn't. it's not a jumpy, scary horror film. If you're going to go with anything tonally, possibly World War Z, in terms of the Mm -hmm. unlikable characters, which were more realistic that way character-wise. There is one absolute bastard of a character. Mm -hmm. He's not a nice man. Or woman, no spoilers. (laughs) 
really, really good zombie makeup, physically good performances as the zombies, which I know that sounds odd, but yeah. something a little different other than that normal kind of either shambling, shambling or just running. You physically could tell that these were not human. Hmm. Uh, even like the opening scene with the, the deer. Yeah, so it's an infection that is not just affecting humans. Mm-hmm. Mm. That doesn't necessarily come into a huge amount of play in the main action of the film, but it's interesting contextual information. Because mm-hmm. you yeah. get all these little glimpses of wider things that are going on beyond what's happening mm-hmm. to the characters, but it doesn't feel the need to cut to a bunch of scientists going, this is what's happening, this is what's going on, call in the Air Force. Yeah. Uh, like you might sometimes expect from that kind of a film. It just gives you what the characters on the train know, and that's mm. it. Not seeing the whole world and what's going on is not that unusual. In a, yeah, Bird Box, for example, does exactly the same. Yeah, something like uh, Night of the Living Dead, even, you know, you don't know what's going on. You get, you get some hint on a video of a meteorite, but you don't know whether this is local or whether it's the entire world. Things like Cloverfield also have done that. You know, you get it very much from one person's point of view. As a horror fan, I absolutely loved it. As an action fan, I, I loved it. Go yeah. and see it if you haven't. The guy comes from animation, apparently. There is on Amazon Prime a film called Soul Station, which is a anime kind of a side piece to it, which was released at the same time, which I haven't seen, but has got quite good reviews. Yeah, so thoroughly recommend Train to Busan. Mm, cool. Uh, I yeah. will watch it. Excellent. I think I hear a message coming in from the other end of the void. It's Ian Mayer. Greetings from the void, my nerdy friends. Denny Villeneuve's cinematic adaptation of Dune is picking up pace and signing a lot of cast members which is a very exciting prospect for me. I'm a lifetime lover of the books and have a massive soft spot for the David Lynch adaptation in 1984. A formative nerd movie for me, and I used to have the action figures, and I wish I still did. I think this film in particular has got a lot of potential because I'm completely won over by Villeneuve as director. Uh, Scario is great, Arrival is great. And for my money, he earns an old fame nerd card for Blade Runner 2049, which manages to achieve the almost impossible It's a sequel to a decades-tested sci-fi classic, which actually lived up to its predecessor. Dune is one of the absolute solid gold nerd touchdowns. Arthur C. Clarke once said of Dune, I know nothing to compare it to but Lord of the Rings, and I have to agree. As a novel, the first in a long series, it was written in 1965 by Frank Herbert, and it's an epic in scope and theme, partly inspired by Herbert's research into ecology in the Oregon sand dunes, which he was writing about as a journalist. Now there's tons you could say about Dune, its influence on sci-fi and wider culture. It's inspired hundreds of song lyrics, it's been a TV show, a board game, several computer games including Dune 2, which is generally considered to be the first game in the real-time strategy genre. But let's stick to the Villeneuve film for now, which I'm really excited about. So there's been talk of a new film version of Dune for a while, and though I uh, half expected it to get the Game of Thrones big TV show treatment, a film has nearly got off the ground a couple of times in the last few years. For a while, director Peter Berg, director of Battleship and Lone Survivor, was in line to direct this. I'm not sure how that would have turned out, but as a project, it was kind of interesting. It did generate some amazing concept art by the British comics artist Jock. This guy is also the key concept artist on the Alex Garland films Ex Machina and Annihilation. And it's well worth googling the Jock Dune concept art if you want to see some really evocative desert scenes and a very kind of apocalyptic take on the sandworm. But this film, now in pre-production, is written by a couple of different people we know about including Eric Roth, who's the writer of tons of things, including the Spielberg adaptations of Forrest Gump and Munich. That's real writing pedigree right there. 
And if that wasn't enough, John Spate is also writing it. Now that's a name many nerds may remember for a few geeky properties. He's the writer of Passengers with Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt, the Marvel movie Doctor Strange, and he's also the guy who was commissioned to write Alien Engineers, the script that became Prometheus. A lot of nerds give Prometheus a lot of shit, and I'm one of them. I think it's a really uneven mess of a film. But the original script he wrote, Alien Engineers, which you can Google and find in PDF form, is really good at its core and well worth reading. I mention both these writers because there's real credibility here, both in sci-fi understanding and also demonstrated ability with kind of real literary adaptation. We don't know what they're going to do, but what we do know for sure is the cast that's being assembled is amazing. We've got Jason Momoa, Rebecca Ferguson, Zendaya, Josh Brolin, Charlotte Rampling, Javier Bardem, Oscar Isaac, Dave Batista, who I think is going to be amazing, and, and Stellan Skarsgård in the villain role. Timothy Chalamet is Paul Atreides. It's Paul's story, June, and this is the character who will be most changed by it, and he absolutely has to hold the centre of the film. I'm absolutely positive he'll be great. I do think this is really solid casting, but it's not what I'm really interested in. Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto Atreides, Paul's father. Now this is very much the sort of Ned Stark of this franchise. He's the lord of a noble house in a story about politics and betrayal. Lots of places are reporting that Dune will be at least two films. Now if this is the case, I think we'll see a lot of Leto in his household, and I think we'll kind of love him. He'll be charismatic and stoic, and you know, more than a little bit vain. Great though this casting is, the real surprise and thing I'm most impressed about is Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck. Now, that's the part played by Patrick Stewart in the David Lynch film. Stewart has confirmed it was a complete mistake that he was cast. Gurney Halleck, the character, is a swordsmaster and troubadour. He's a former slave and a gladiator. He's kind of a burned, scarred soul who's now loyal and warm and a loyal member of House Atreides. Not to diss Sir Patrick, who I think we can all agree is a great actor with great presence. But I think Josh Brolin is a far, far better casting for Gurney. Brolin looks like a guy who's started at least 100 bar fights and probably won a few of them. Josh Brolin's lived a bunch of this, and I think he's a credible enough actor that he can put some of that lived experience on screen. Now, I'm expecting a lot from this film. I'm expecting some big deviations for the book. I'm expecting cinematic grandeur, and some of the best concept artists in the world have been waiting to design this. It's like working on Star Wars or something. It's going to be huge. I do have some fear that it's not going to find its audience, but as June teaches us, fear is the mind killer. So I'm looking forward to seeing what it can be. Thank you, nerds. Catch you later. I think you both have earned the reward of a delve into my sack of fun. Oh. oh. say it's, it's more of a punishment than a reward, but my sack is bulging. With goodies <laughs> for both of you. Why? <laughs> Thanks for that image. Would you like to delve into the sack of fun and see what you pull out? No. Okay, stop shaking it now if he's getting too excited. Right, I'm putting my hand into the sack. John, why is it wet? And yet strangely dry at the same time. <laughs> I, I know, it's a, it's a curious sensation and I have pulled out... Have you been reviewing sex with me on TripAdvisor? Mm, three stars. Um, <laughs> I have... Let's try harder. I have received Al Pacino's 88 Minutes. The tagline is, Jack Graham has 88 minutes to solve a murder. His own. (gasps) Even Al Pacino's gone straight to DVD. (laughs) Oh dear. Yeah, I seem to remember this actually did get a cinema release, but was so badly reviewed it might as well not have. At least it's only 88 minutes long. It's not, it's 108 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) For fuck's sake. (laughs) 
<laughs> can't even get that right. That was my favourite thing about the film. <laughs> <laughs> that film called 88 Minutes can't even get its real time. Uh, I will not be watching that anytime soon. Maybe Tom just feels slow while you're watching it. Yeah. It was written and directed by nobody I've ever heard of. I don't know the name of a single other person in the cast other than Big Al. You might have heard of Lily Sobieski. She's from oh. Girls, oh, yeah. isn't she? Yes, I do um, know that name, yes. yeah. Amy Brenneman. Yes, I know her. something. Benjamin McKenzie might be Ryan from the OC, and Neil McDonough's one of the Howling Commandos from Captain America. Mm-hmm. Action, it's got uh, people in it. Mm-hmm. almost, yeah. considering. I mean, you're right on the writer and director, never heard of them, but... Peter? Oh, God. Do I have to? All right. Here Slip we go. your hand into the sack and see what comes Delving out. Delving deep. We have Fist of the Vampire, Raise the Fresh Horror. When police detective Lee Southward delves into the murky world of the underground fight scene, he starts solving the case fists first. Oh, this looks appalling. <laughs> it really does. It just looks atrocious with someone who mm, vaguely trying to look like Riddick on the front cover, but oh, yeah. it'll have nothing to do with that. You see, the problem I have with this case is that on the cover... The word of is strangely inconspicuous. Um, Instead of fist vampire. Fist, it the just vampire. looks like fist the vampire to me. <laughs> <laughs> but also, he, no one looks vampiric. There's also a special blurb at the top. Some respect, please, ladies and gentlemen. We have stars ready to entertain you tonight in the form of pro wrestler the Blue Meanie and the shapely shape of erotic cinema icon Darian Kane, who may or may not be related to Michael. <laughs> these I think two not mean, is fairly safe. <laughs> these two mean two things: action-packed horror and wild and bloody senseless. No, they nudity. mean do not under any circumstances rent this video. That's what <laughs> those two people mean. Fight club meets bike club. So Dan, do you want the swaps? It's got a wrestler in it. Uh, no, uh, being familiar with the wrestling career of the Blue Meanie, I'm going to stick with Al Pacino. How terrible has it got to be that even Dan rejected? <laughs> this is for 96 minutes approximately. <laughs> And the aspect ratio is four to three. It's not even a widescreen print of the film. I mean, the Blue Meanie was a former WWE hardcore champion. Mm. Very briefly in 1999. I would like to point out, though, Dan, before you make your choice, this is only 96 minutes long. Yes. As opposed to Ooh. 108 minutes for 88 minutes. And it has got vampires in it. It has. Uh, and wrestlers. Mm. Yeah, but the Blue Meanie, though. Contains mm. strong bloody violence and sexualised nudity. I always laugh when they say strong bloody violence because it's like a swearing when they say it. No, I'm, I'll, <laughs> I'll stick with Al Pacino, but uh, I'm still certain it's not my turn. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the vet the other day. I took a budgie in. And I, I can only assume that they'd failed to save it, but rather than not take a fee, they tried to pass another bird off, and I was like, that's not my turn. <laughs> oh, that's just awful. <laughs> Oh, that's my entire repertoire of <laughs> turned how, how long was your stand-up career, John? <laughs> Surprisingly prolific. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to see WWE in a couple of months. And is the Blue Meanie still uh, an active um, wrestler? The Blue Meanie's last appearances were in 2006. So it was mid to late 90s where he was at his peak. The big angle at the time was Hulk Hogan leading the New World Order. The Blue Meanie was a rip-off of they that. They really called it the New World Order. Is they did. not a bit Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's wrestling. We don't want to get into that. They also had a wrestler called The Ultimate Solution. Oh. And that was the changed name. We'll not get into that. 
But the Blue Meanie set up his own independent version of that called the Blue World Order. Uh, (laughs) Predated Eiffel 65 by a year or so, yeah. And that act took him to WWE, where he was involved in lots of matches where people hit each other over the head with bins and baking sheets and that sort of thing. He returned in 2006, was involved in an incident where he fell out with another wrestler who attacked him quite violently for reals Mm. in the ring after a show. Mm. And he got cuts and stitches all over his face as a result of it. Mm -hmm. They didn't fire the guy who did it, but they let him keep a job for a little bit longer, then went off into semi-retirement. Was he in The Wrestler? He would have been around that scene at that time. I certainly remember him having some involvement in that film, whether it was as an advisor or a star or something. But uh, I have briefed Louise on what to expect when you go and see it, so she's going to be able to tell you who to cheer and who not to cheer. What passes for a tagline on this movie is, is that a stake in your pocket or are you just pleased to feed on me? Eight out of ten. Have you ever seen the film Zombie Strippers featuring Robert England, better known as Freddy Krueger? And the tagline for that is, they'll swallow your soul, anything else will cost extra. (laughs) Oh. The thing I'm looking forward to about this film is that Pete is inevitably going to not watch it, leave it on a shelf somewhere, and then have to explain to his wife why he has a film that appears to mainly be an excuse for ladies to take their clothes off and fight each other. Where's the ladies taking their clothes off, Pop? There's a a lot of talk of senseless nudity in there. there? The Blue Mini was married to a porn star. Was he? Who was he married to? Jasmine St. Clair. I know that name. Yeah. I've never seen her work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, so is that you. where the Woody Allen film came from? Blue Jasmine? Was that about their relationship? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. I'm sure Hazel will be back soon to keep us all in check. If you enjoy the show, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Nerdfest UK. But in the meantime, you have been listening to the one and only Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson and John Farthen. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Get well soon, Hazel. Hello and welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we have Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, and I'm John Farthing. But where's Hazel? Have you not checked the news? Hang on. Oh. Uh, oh, oh. She has a cold. It's just a very slow news day. <laughs> <laughs> Her piece from Chris Hemsworth. Worth it. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Try another one, but more excited. Sell it. Okay. I thought I was quite excited. No. Hello! No, yeah. sell it less. <laughs> and we have with us... Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson. And me, John Farthing. But where's Hazel, John? They finally caught up with her. <laughs> oh. Hello and welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. We have a particularly exciting episode today and with us we have... Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson. And me, John Farthing. But John, where's Hazel? It turns out the YouTube investigation has gone down some unexpected alleyways. (laughs) 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 How how many more of these have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Where's Hazel, John? She killed a man just to watch him die. Where's Hazel, John? Uh, I took her to the vets. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to let those little friends go. Acquaintances. But John, where's Hazel? Hazel was dead all along. Bruce, and so are you. I see dead people.
So, John, where's Hazel? I have no idea. I've been out. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Nervous Podcast. We have a particularly excited episode today. And with us we have... Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson. And John Farland. But, John, where's Hazel? Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> That's your end of the episode. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>